I want to invite us to look at a couple different things today. One is uh, our Old Testament text, which comes to us from Isaiah 35. The wilderness, this is the prophet Isaiah, the wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a rose. It will blossom abundantly and will also rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, steady the shaking knees. Say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Noticing that when the vengeance of the Lord comes, what happens is that the eyes of the blind are opened and the ears of the deaf are unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool of water and the thirsty land springs of water. In the haunt of jackals in their lairs, there will be grass, reeds and papyrus. A road will be there, a highway in the desert and it will be called the holy way. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for the one who walks the path. Even the fool will not go astray. There will be no lion there and no vicious beast will go up on it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk on it. And the redeemed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee. Kierkegaard, or at least it's attributed to Kierkegaard, has this saying that you make the road by walking it, which is a way of saying, if you want certain paths to be built, the only way for them to be built is by your walking the paths. If you wanna develop habits in your life, the only way to do that is by actually doing the habits and that over time of you actually doing, the habits will start to form. Isaiah mentions there is a highway in the desert. And at least something of what Isaiah is suggesting is that the way that this highway works is not that we make the road by walking it, but the road makes us as we walk it. This is what we see through a season like Advent. We don't generate feelings of longing and anticipation, hope, expectation. We don't generate those things by just practicing the season. The season itself actually cultivates those things in our own lives as we learn to walk this Advent road. The road doesn't so much get made by us as much as we're made by walking the road. I bumped into uh, an article this week in the New York Times that I think speaks to some of the, the Advent longing that we experience in this season. And I think it, it cuts to the quick of what it is to be an Advent people, and, and not in any kind of cheap way, but to be an Advent people in the, in the most meaningful kind of way. It was a story of 
the Ukrainian children's choir. And they're traveling the world right now. They're singing these Christmas carols, these songs of hope, announcing the coming of Jesus. But they're doing it as children who have witnessed and experienced massive heartache. They've, they've witnessed the destruction of their homes, the loss of their friends, family members, all sense of what is normal. And when they were interviewing one of these girls, she said, I feel like our experience has given meaning to our music. It's given meaning to our music. That for them to travel and to sing these songs of hope and these songs of longing, these songs of anticipation that Jesus has come, has broken into our world, it's not cheap for them. There's a hope and a longing there that's been earned in some way. That's what Advent does to us. Advent invites us to take a look at the world as it really is, not as we want it to be. And then to hope in a kind of direction, to cultivate longing in a kind of direction. And we don't do well with longing. We're the people of Amazon two-day delivery. Like, we don't know what it is to hope and to long, to yearn, for something to be made right. And so today we bump up against John the Baptist and John is a kind of icon for Advent. He is the person who is pointing to the hope of the world. He is the messenger who has gone before Christ preparing the way of the Lord. He does this work in the desert and he's the one who acknowledges that here's the one who's going to set all things to rights. Here's the one who is going to open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf. It's going to make the lame walk. The mute are going to sing for joy. And here's John, knowing that that's who Jesus is, pointing the way toward this one who has come. And where does he find himself? In prison. I think this is how most of us are going to experience Advent. Or at least we ought to learn how to experience Advent in that way. That we can bear witness to the good that God is doing in the world. And we also acknowledge at the very same time that that good that God seems to be doing is never really happening for us, <laughs> if we're honest. It always feels like God is doing the good out there for them and not for us, we feel like we're the ones pointing to Jesus, but we've been left in our own prisons. So what does John do? He sends two of his disciples to go and ask Jesus, are you the one that we've been waiting for? Or should we wait for another? Now, this has always been a kind of confusing text to me because here, here is John, right? I mean, every icon of John, if you've not seen them, have him with his, his, his pointer finger extended out toward Jesus and they make his finger like extra long so they can, you can tell that it's John, right? He's the one who's pointing. <clears throat> He's the one who is always pointing us to Jesus. 
which is to say he's, he's kind of the first one who's in on this thing that Jesus is doing. He gets it before anybody else gets it. And now here he is in prison, and he seems to be doubting everything that he knows, everything that he's just told everyone else about who this Jesus person is. So he sends his disciples. Now, a few things that I think might be happening here. One, I think there is a way in which we can read this as a kind of doubt that's arising for John. And some of the, the, the work that John has to do here, some of the questions that are being turned over in his own heart and his own mind, is, is this really the one that we've been waiting for? And part of what John is experiencing is the very same kind of thing that Mary experiences in the garden, where she, she goes to grab on to Jesus, and he says, don't cling to me, Mary. Why? Because the Jesus that is resurrected is better than the Jesus that she knew. That this transformation that Jesus has just undergone, he's better than the Jesus that she knew. And the same thing is happening for John. That here he is in prison, but somehow the Jesus that's out there doing the work of kingdom building is better than the Jesus that he remembers. But doubt has crept up. And so he sends his disciples out to find out, are you really the one? And isn't it interesting that when they come to Jesus, Jesus gives them their answer, and then he sends them away. And it, the text says, as they were leaving, which means the very next thing that Jesus says, he wants them to overhear. And he says this about John. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to look at? Was it a reed blowing in the wind? He mentions, did you go out to see someone dressed in soft robes? Now, he's just done something here that I think we should pay attention to. Jesus has just responded to John's question by quoting these very lines from the prophet Isaiah. And when Jesus sends these men, these disciples back to John, and he wants them to overhear what he's about to say about John, and he says, what did you expect to see, soft robes? Those robes belong in palaces. What immediately would have started coming to their imagination was that that's exactly who Isaiah was. Isaiah was the prophet who lived right at the very center of power. He did live in the palace. And so Jesus is essentially asking them, you know who the prophet Isaiah is. Did you come out here to see the very same thing? Did you think that John was going to be like that one that you're familiar with? No, of course not. Something else entirely different is going on here. So there's obviously some doubting that's arising in John that Jesus is speaking to. Some scholars, as you read this text, they think that there's, there's a chance that John knows exactly what Jesus is up to and exactly who this Jesus is. But his disciples have started to question. They're asking the question, if, if Jesus is this one that you've claimed he is, why isn't he here? Why hasn't he set you free? And so what John is doing is actually sending out his disciples to hear from Jesus 
to go and see the work that Jesus is about doing, to let these disciples see that the eyes are being opened, that the ears are being unstopped. So he's not just doubting, but he's sending out his disciples in order for them to get a glimpse of who Jesus is. But there's something else happening here that I think, I'd never experienced this. This is the first time I've ever bumped into this explanation. There's a, there's a great introduction that was written by C.S. Lewis for uh, this Athanasius text on the incarnation. And in his introduction, C.S. Lewis is saying, we, we need the wisdom of people who are writing in a time and in a culture that's not our own. We need, of course, there's contemporary things that are being written that are helpful. But he says those things, they've not yet stood the test of time. And because we're contemporaries with those texts, we can't even judge them for what they are. So he says the best way for us to, to lean in and to have our eyes open, to open up the aperture of our souls a bit to some of these kinds of ideas is to actually go to some of the oldest writings and the oldest ideas. So this idea comes to us from Gregory the Great, and it's, it's fascinating to me because he suggests, he, he's writing this, Gregory the Great for context, um, fifth century bishop, uh, an incredible story about St. Gregory. He was the son of a, a Roman senator at the time when Rome's power is kind of declining. And there's a story of Gregory walking through a market as a boy and he sees these, these slaves that are being sold. And he's confused by what he's looking at. And he says to his father, who, who are those people? What are those people? And he's told, those slaves are Anglo-Saxons. You know, this is fifth century, Gregory the Great. So there are people in the market being sold, exchanged, that look more or less like us. Time goes by, and Gregory the Great becomes bishop. And one of the first things that Gregory does as bishop is he sends missionaries to those Anglo-Saxons. He carried that in his heart for all those years, this, this level of, of compassion and concern for those people that he saw being bought and sold in slavery. We might not ever know the gospel if it's not for Gregory the great, sending missionaries to those Anglo-Saxons. So he's preaching this sermon sometime in the fifth century, and he's, he's reflecting on what is happening in John as John is, is sending out these disciples to go and ask Jesus, are you the one? And what he suggests is that he's not doubting, and he's not just trying to get his disciples to get a glimpse of who this, this Jesus character is. What he suggests is that John is asking for another call. He suggests that the disciples are there essentially saying, John was given the call, given the mission to announce you in life. And now that he's about to die, now that he's about to be executed, can he announce you in death? This is the question that's being asked. Essentially, not, are you the one? Like, should we be sure about you? But Jesus, I know I'm about to go into death. Can I announce you even there? 
Will you follow this thing through all the way to death so that I can go and faithfully announce and proclaim, behold the Lamb of God, even in death? This is the question that's being asked, that the reason John ends up being more than just a prophet, as the text tells us, was that he didn't just see God. Remember Isaiah, if you remember Isaiah's call, he sees the Lord lifted up in the temple. This is Isaiah's vision when, he, when he's called to being a prophet. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne in the temple. But John doesn't just see God. John becomes like God. That in the moment of his pain, in the moment of his suffering, the moment of his imprisonment, what he wants to do is spread the good news. That whether he's sending his disciples to get a glimpse of Jesus or he's asking Jesus for another kind of call, can I announce you even in death? What rises up in John in the midst of his pain and the midst of his suffering is that he wants to announce the good news. This image of John in a prison, it should also call to mind this image of Paul and Silas. Paul seems to be somebody who finds himself in prison all the time. But remember this, this story where they're singing songs and the walls of the prison fall down. And what rises up in them is not to run away. It's not to flee. It's not to escape. What rises up in them is a care for the other prisoners in their midst. They realize that our freedom and our liberation doesn't mean anything so long as these prisoners are still stuck here. And so what do they do? They minister to them. What should well up in us in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, is not just relief for relief's sake. What wells up in the hearts and in the songs of those Ukrainian children is not just hope to make us all feel good. It's born from a deeper place. It's born from a reality of what's really possible to hope in the darkness. And that's what Advent is. As the power was flickering this morning, I joked, well, Advent does begin in the dark. It turns out Advent ends there too. <laughs> we get to the end of this season and we anticipate this one who's gonna come and set all things to rights, who's going to overthrow all the systems and all the powers that stand in the face of Jesus. And it turns out that the one who comes to us is a baby. All of our ideas about how all of this gets set right, they don't amount to much. All of our ideas about what justice and freedom and health and wholeness, all of our ideas about what those things look like don't mean much. Because it seems that the way that Jesus answers those questions, his solution to those problems doesn't look anything like what I would choose. But still we're asked 
Can you walk this road? If you do keep walking this, this road, it turns out that you might look like God in prison. You are called, hear this, you are called not to see God like Isaiah. You are called to be like God, like John the Baptist. It's not about what you see of God, what you understand of God, but do others see God in you when they brush up against you? We're not called, as funny as this, this, this sounds, we are not called to know God only. We're called to live so that as others brush up against our lives, God might be known by us. To be God's people then, it's to find ourselves in places that we don't really want to be. To be sure, John the Baptist does not want to be where he is. Paul and Silas, again, don't want to be where they are. But the pain that you experience, God didn't put you there. God doesn't put you in places of pain, but God is in you as you are in pain. That's the point of Advent. You know, there's been this burning question for me. We hear Jesus say to his disciples to go and visit the people who are in prison. This is part of the way that God sorts the sheep from the goats, remember, that you feed the hungry, that you give drinks to the thirsty, that you clothe the naked, you, you visit the sick, you visit those who are in prison. And here is John in prison, and Jesus doesn't go visit him. And this week, as I was thinking about this text, I thought, Jesus, why didn't you go to John? Why does he have to send out his disciples to go and ask you a question. Why aren't you there to answer his questions directly? And what I felt pressed back against that question was, Jesus doesn't need to go see John. Jesus is in John. You might be in the midst of your own kind of pain, in your own kind of suffering, and you're wondering, when is God going to come to me? But God is in you, in your pain. And the question that we have in a season like Advent is, can we sing our songs long enough until we have hope, not cheap hope, Hope that we earn. Hope that actually has, has meaning. God is in you, in your pain. And when the walls of whatever kind of pain that you're in actually do fall down, don't run away. Stay and sing and be God to those fellow prisoners. Because people that you know are in pain. And what they need, what the world needs, are people who have been in pain long enough to see God actually open up those walls and then to sit with them 
to give them space to voice their questions and their doubts, their hopes and their longings. And we need to be there. We need to be there as people who know what's possible. This is Advent. This is hoping in the dark. This is being in prison, watching God do miracles for other people. This is asking God, look, it looks like this whole thing is gonna end up pretty badly. Remember, John's beheaded not too long after this. And I think he had a sense of that, which is why he asks the question, as I go to Hades, can I announce that you're right behind me, just like I always have? Amen.